1 Timothy, and we finished chapter 2 last week, and before we jump into chapter 3, I want to back up just for a second. Remember, we spent a whole lot of time talking about endless genealogies. Something else occurred to me. I went into long speculation about what could be talked about. You know, we cross-checked with uh, Titus, and we cross-checked with Revelation and Ephesians. The other thing it might be is, who's a Hebrew? Because remember, the northern kingdom had been scattered. So as the gospel goes through the Mediterranean basin, one of the problems they have, of course, is with ethnic Jews who were of the circumcision party who are saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, you got to do all this stuff which, of course, was the subject of Galatians and so forth. But the other thing that's going on, or may be going on, is you've got the ten tribes in a dispersion. And they are still there, and they are still identifiable, because both James and Peter address letters to the tribes in the dispersion, not just Jews who have spread throughout the Mediterranean basin, but the tribes in the dispersion, indicating that at least some of them are still identifiable. So one of the things about genealogies may have to do with who's a Hebrew and who's a Gentile. Again, this is all speculation. We talked about it for quite a while last time, and at least I didn't come to any definitive conclusion. But it occurred to me this week as I was studying that, oh, wait a minute, that is also in the mix as far as genealogies are concerned. And of course, Paul in Romans and other places goes to great pains to say that in the kingdom of God in Christ, there's no distinction. You all can come into the kingdom and you all can be sons of God and brothers of Christ. So I'm not sure that that helps anything, but it occurred to me, so I thought I would bring it up. The other thing that's going on here as we jump into three, which is qualifications for overseers and so forth, is one of the things that Paul is clearly concerned about is having the church be respected in the community. He doesn't want to be regarded by the secular societies around him as this bunch of weirdos. For one thing, it invites persecution if everybody thinks you're a bunch of weirdos. The other thing is, of course, that to the best of your ability, you'd like to live in peace. So one of the things that he talked about back in chapter 2 is praying for secular leaders. So coming down now to chapter 3, we have qualifications for leadership in the church. And there's two degrees of leadership mentioned here. One is overseers or what we would call elders. And the other is deacons. And the qualifications for both are basically the same, with one exception. And the big exception is that an elder is expected to be able to teach. If you remember going back to Acts, there was some dissension, if you will, within the Jerusalem church about who was going to 
handle distribution of food and all that kind of stuff. And the apostles decided that they had more important things to do, which is teaching and so forth. So they set up the office of deacon, who was to take care of the administration, if you will, of the church. So the difference, as I say, is in duties, and one is entirely service. The other one is service plus leadership plus teaching. So reading now chapter 3. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. So well thought of by outsiders is a theme that he's mentioned a couple of times. Let me give you an example. Many of you know Bethel in Israel. They are a Christian kibbutz, and they were set up after World War II by some Christian, essentially nuns, but they're not Catholic. In other words, Christian women in church. They were just appalled by what had happened in Germany during the Holocaust. So what they did is they went to Israel and they set up this kibbutz and the stated mission was to bless the Jewish people. They were regarded with suspicion, being German, and being Christian, they were regarded with suspicion. And they had several instances where their property was vandalized by Jews. We don't want Germans, we don't want Christians, get out of here. They had children throwing rocks in their windows and, and those kinds of things. They also initially couldn't get permanent resident status because they were not Jewish. So what they would do is they would rotate in and out. They would go in on a visa for whatever the length of time you can stay on a visa is, and then rotate back to Germany, always keeping the place manned. And being Germans and engineers, they set up factories. They are, for example, I don't know if they're the only supplier, but they're a major supplier of air filters to filter out gas, which is ironic. They will not make any military equipment except that they do make filters for military vehicles to keep them from being gassed. They were up in the Golan Heights and some farmer had a bumper crop and couldn't get rid of it all. So they built a jam factory and they took his crop and turned it into jam and sold it and so forth. So one of the things that happened is these Jewish hooligans were throwing rocks through their windows, they got caught and the local police dragged them in there and were going to prosecute them. And the people running the Christian kibbutz said, no, we won't prosecute. Years later, one of the guys who was involved in that incident 
was running for mayor of a local town. Had he been convicted, he would not have been able to run. And so they have now an entree into that town because the mayor remembers them. They also now have permanent residence. They don't have to do this shuttling back and forth anymore because the Jews have finally said, okay, you guys are okay. So this is the kind of thing Paul is talking about. You got this sect of weirdos, Christians, and they're in a strange society. They're not the majority. And so what he's interested in is maintaining a good witness because of course, if you maintain a good witness, you can evangelize. Although I don't know that they do evangelize. I think they're fairly circumspect about that because Israel is so touchy. But if you're disorderly, unruly, or any of those kinds of things, and you're not a blessing to the community, you're going to wind up with a bad witness. You're going to wind up perhaps getting run out of town. Just all sorts of bad stuff is going to happen to you. So Timothy, being a pastor, is going to be responsible for a church. And so you have this advice over and over again make sure that your group maintains a good witness in the community. It'll help you to evangelize. It'll keep you from getting persecuted. Just all sorts of good things will happen there. So those are what we would call elders, overseers, and different words are used for the same office in different parts of the Bible. Elders are used some places. Overseers are used some places. But the idea is the governing board of a church and then verse 7 he says the overseers must be thought well of by outsiders and they also must not be new converts you want people who have some experience who've been around then deacons likewise must be dignified not double-tongued not addicted to much wine not greedy for dishonest gain they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first don't know what that means. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their household well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Messiah Yeshua. The way we originally set it up in this church is deacon was a stepping stone to being an elder. Give them responsibility and let them work for a while under supervision. And then as they mature and so forth and get their feet under them, they would become an elder or an overseer. Verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you that if I delay, you might know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Obviously talking about Yeshua. Chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Through insincerity of liars whose conscience are seared, 
who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. That's all one sentence. Let's unpack it first. Devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. In other words, the liars are the vehicle through which the deceitful spirits speak. For those of you who have been through Musar, I think you may have heard this, for those of you who haven't, what they say in Musar, which is practical advice on how to live a holy life and change yourself into something more pleasing to God. And what they say is, anyone who sins three times, for him it is no longer a sin. What that means is, there's something that you want to do. The first time you do it, assuming you know it's wrong, there's a struggle. Yeah, I know this is wrong, but I really want to do it, that kind of thing. So the first time you do it, there's this struggle. The second time you do it, the struggle becomes weaker. The third time you do it, the struggle is gone. And for you, that thing is no longer a commandment of God because you no longer struggle with it. You just violate it willy-nilly whenever the opportunity presents itself. So people whose conscience are seared, I am assuming we're talking about that, which is to say someone who is so used to and adept at lying that it no longer bothers him. So I'm assuming that he's talking about that kind of thing. And the next question we should be wondering about, I am, verse 3, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and follow the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Context. I don't know. The commentary that goes with my Bible program says he's talking about Gnosticism. So let's talk about that first because it's as good an answer as I have. Virtually every belief system has got spiritual exercises which are intended to, for lack of a better term, mortify the flesh and build up the spirit. Pretty much every religion has that. To include Judaism, the idea of fasting on Yom Kippur and so forth, and fasting at other times is perfectly acceptable. Christians fast, and there's no problem with fasting whatsoever. So these spiritual exercises that people do with the idea of suppressing the flesh to elevate the spirit are healthy, and everybody does it. Gnosticism, which was a rival faith to Christianity, So, for example, for those of you who may know about Masons, Freemasons, they're a Gnostic group. So the idea there is that you elevate yourself by learning secrets. And the more secret stuff you learn, the higher up you are. So as you advance in Gnosticism, they give you access to different information, more information, and so forth, all of which is intended to elevate you spiritually. Gnosticism is an outgrowth of the collision between Greeks and Scripture because the Greek idea is that you have an immortal soul which has been trapped 
in a physical body. And the goal of the exercise is to get your soul freed from the physical body and be a disembodied spirit and soul like you were originally before you got captured. Some Eastern religions are the same thing. The idea of reincarnation and you keep getting reincarnated and if you do better and better at some point, you're free! You never get reincarnated. This is a fairly common belief in certainly Gnosticism and several other religions. The commentary that goes with my Bible program says that's what we're talking about here. And it could very well be. So the idea of forbidding marriage, well, why would you forbid marriage? Because in marriage you get children and children would entrap yet another soul in the world. So getting married and having children is a bad deal because you wind up entrapping yet another immortal soul in the world who then has to work and figure out how to get out of here. So forbidding marriage is a Gnostic kind of a thing. Abstinence from foods. Pretty much all religions have dietary laws. I have talked to Christians and heard Christian preachers who take this to mean that God's laws of kashrut are nullified. And as I have said in the context of Shabbat and several other things, God has got dietary restrictions on us and started off and said, one thing, don't eat that one thing. Well, that didn't work. We ate that one thing. And by eating that one thing, we became mortal. So we go through the flood and come up the other side. He says, all right, now you can eat animals. Before you used to be vegetarians. Then he separates his own people and he says, yeah, but you can't eat them all. These are the animals that you can eat. Cloven hooves, chew the cud, A-frame leg that jumps, that kind of thing. God cares what we eat. We got into this mess by inappropriate eating. So if this were going to be a treatise against the laws of kashrut, for a Jewish believer, Paul would have to say that explicitly. If he were going to say, all right, all y'all, shrimp, lobster, all okay now, catfish, do whatever you want. If he were going to say that, he would have to explicitly say, this is what I am talking about. It would not be sort of an oblique reference of God created all food for good. Now, for Gentiles, one of the things that the Council of Jerusalem said is abstain from blood and don't eat things strangled. Those two laws go clear back to Genesis 9 after the flood. And abstaining from blood is more than just don't eat blood. There's all sorts of regulations in Judaism about blood, and we talked about those in the context of Galatians, I believe, where we went through Leviticus side by side with the Council of Jerusalem's proclamation. And Leviticus said no sexual immorality, don't eat blood, it says, don't associate with your wife when she is in her normal cycle. That also has to do with blood and no idols. 
So everything that the Council of Jerusalem said is just straight out of Leviticus. They weren't inventing anything new. And the point I'm making here is, as near as I can tell in the New Testament, there isn't anything that obviates any of the laws that are given in the Torah. I just don't know of any. Lots of examples, you know, like Peter on his way to Cornelius and he sees the sheep come down and arise, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, nope, not going to do it. And it happens three times. And, and what he says I drew from that is I will not count any man unclean because of what he eats. Because the problem is he's on his way to a Gentile house. And it's forbidden by Jewish oral law, not Torah, for a Jew to go under the roof of a Gentile and certainly forbidden to eat there. So what the vision of the sheep in Peter's own interpretation is I don't have to worry about the fact that these are Gentiles. I may go into their house. I will not call them unclean because of what they do. But as I say, I have run up against Sunday believers who fetch up in places like this and say, hey, ham salad on Easter Sunday is just fine because of a passage like this. And I don't see it. I see this as being in the context of some kind of false teaching. The context here is people going astray, following after the doctrines of demons, and oh, by the way, one of the things those doctrines say is abstain from this and don't do that. And what Paul is saying in context is don't listen to them. These, This artificial asceticism that they preach is part and parcel of their doctrine and is not to be followed. Anyway, I probably have spent more time on that than you need, but it comes up all the time. So verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Messiah Yeshua, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Now, many of your translations will have old wives' tales. I think King James and derivatives have old wives' tales. Not quite sure what that means. One of the things that happens fairly frequently in Messianic Judaism is there are lots and lots of books out there some of them quite old, going back to a couple hundred years before Christ, that are non-canonical, which is to say they are not part of the canon of Scripture. And people will get a hold of those things and they'll say, oh, it says here in this book that X, Y, or Z. Maybe the Torah or the Bible or whatever is wrong. And I spend a fair amount of time tangling with those things. My perspective, at least, is the Torah is the canon, and as far as I'm concerned, I bounce everything to include the New Testament against the Torah, and at least the canonical scriptures in the New Testament I have never found to be in conflict. 
But as I say, there's lots of other stuff out there and people will get a hold of it and just go off in a rabbit trail. And I don't know that that's what Paul is talking about. But that happens frequently enough that I can see that it might. And especially it happens with Gentiles who are coming into the church. Because Gentiles don't check the stuff that they learned in pagan Sunday school at the door. You learn on your mother's knee the genealogy of the gods or whatever it is. You don't forget that stuff. And one of the things that you do subconsciously is see, is there any of this stuff that I learned that is compatible with Scripture? And of course, as you know, the Catholic Church, God bless them, altered all sorts of stuff in order to bring pagans into the church. And that's how we get Halloween, and that's how we get Christmas, and that's how we get Easter, and all of those things. They're essentially pagan holidays that the church took a trowel and slapped some Jesus on top of it and said it's now okay. God, by the way, says don't do that. And understand that pagans are not stupid people. I mean, some of them are, but as a class, being pagan is not an indication that you're stupid. I had an argument with some guy several years ago who was saying that we need to return to the pagan virtues. And what he was talking about is courage and all those kinds of things. You know, the, the warrior virtues of ancient Rome, Greece, and Norway. All of those virtues are salutary. And, you know, for a man to be brave is, is a good thing. But he was looking at it in the context of, I'm Northern European. This is my pagan heritage. And we need to get back to that. Of course, slathering some Christianity over the top. God does not forbid courage. He doesn't forbid being honorable or any of those kinds of things. So they're all also God's virtues, but he was coming at it from these are the virtues of my people and we need to get back to that. Pagans are not stupid people. They have successful societies. They have learned wisdom in the world. And so, in your case, you know, being taught not to walk under a ladder keeps people from dropping things on your head. And the fact that it got wrapped up into a superstition as opposed to simply being, stay out from under the ladder, something might fall on you, which is wisdom, it becomes, stay out from under the ladder or you'll have bad luck. And I am fairly sure that that came about in order to impress on some little kid, it's really important not to go under the ladder. But I don't know that. Knock on wood. All of those kinds of things. I don't know what the old wives' tale or the silly myths are that he's talking about. But I can certainly imagine a bunch of them. So, verse 7 again. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. While bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life, also for the life to come. Now, I am going to make a leap here. You're free to follow me or not, as you choose. 
one of the things we're in is a Greek society. And there are religions who regard physical training as spiritual training. So, for example, you've got the Shaolin monks who are a warrior class of monks. They're a religious order, but their religious discipline involves rigorous physical training. So, again, this silly myths, bodily training, I'm suggesting it maybe has something to do with the Greek gymnasium or something like that. And again, I'm guessing because I don't know what the circumstances are, but all of those things are certainly prevalent in the world. In fact, there are lots of devout Sunday Christians and Messianics who won't do things like Eastern martial arts because very often there is a spiritual component to them. Yoga is the same way. Yoga is very popular, but it's also a spiritual discipline, at least originally. So I'm suggesting that it may be that kind of stuff we're talking about. Don't do their training. Do God's training. None of which is to say that there's a problem with keeping in shape. Verse 9. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And that's an interesting phrase. So let me read it again with emphasis. Verse 10. To this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God. Straightforward. Who is the Savior of all people especially of those who believe. So what does that mean? comment was that a couple of things it could be. One is indicating a problem with Calvinism, who believe in limited atonement. In other words, Yeshua did not die for everybody. He just died for the elect. I am not one of those people, but there are very smart people who are. And the other, of course, is if you don't believe, you're already condemned. comment was that You could look at Savior in a broader context, which is to say benefactor. And of course, simply by letting everybody continue to exist, he is our benefactor. They would certainly agree with that. The thought occurs to me, one of the things that it says, and I don't remember right offhand where the scripture is, but I know it exists, is he died for the sins of all men. His blood has covered everybody's sin. So in that sense, he is the savior of all people, especially those who believe. So what do we do with the especially those who believe? His blood covers all intentional sin. It's the only blood that does cover intentional sin. The blood of bulls and goats is for unintentional sin. You all know that. So... The fact that his blood covers all sin makes him the savior of all people. The especially those who believe. Now I'm going to go into genealogy. This is my opinion. It may prove to be wrong, and if I am, I will throw myself in front of him and ask forgiveness. We know from Scripture that there are going to be two resurrections. 
there's going to be the resurrection of the just who die in Christ, and there's going to be a general resurrection after that. The thing that happens at the general resurrection is the great white throne, where everybody stands in front of Yeshua and books are open, and everybody's judged according to what he did on the earth. This is where genealogy comes in. I don't see any point in holding a court hearing if the verdict is guilty automatically. It's a waste of bandwidth. No point in dragging this guy into court if you're just going to stand him up and say guilty and flop him down again. The only reason to do that is if there is something going on whereby he may look at Yeshua and say, I was wrong, I repent, and please forgive me. And, oh, by the way, I plead your blood as my covering. That's a guess. And if that turns out not to be the case, don't depend on genealogy. So at least as it makes sense to me, and he's not going to ask me for my opinion, at the great white throne, there is going to be an opportunity to say, I was wrong. And there will be some people who will not do that. Even faced with that, they will say, no, I am not going to worship you, I am not going to bend the knee, and I am not going to come into your kingdom. And by the way, there are lots and lots of Christian preachers who say that is not going to happen. If you don't make the decision before you die, it's too late. That is a respectable Christian position. And it may even be right. I don't know. But phrases like this, the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe, indicates to me those who believe before they die don't have to go through this process. They're in the first resurrection, upon whom the second death has no hold. So do with that as seems good to you, but don't entrust your eternal salvation to that answer. So we're all the way down to verse 11. Command and teach these things. By the way, notice, command and teach. One is teach so that people understand them, and then insist that the people in the church behave that way. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Obviously, you all know humans, you've been one. You get a young preacher in there, some of the old folks in the church are going to try and take him under their wing and explain things to him. Verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. There's this weird little phrase here in verse 10. Keep a close watch on yourself, okay, and on the teaching, okay. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, if you are a once saved, always saved kind of a person, 
What does that mean? By the way, what I'm doing here, folks, in case you haven't figured it out, is I am thinking like a Greek. And I'm doing that on purpose. Because what happens with Paul is our society has grown up in a Greek way of thinking. Our school system is that way, everything. It's the way we look at things. And when you want to do something, like have a shrimp cocktail, you'll go back to this business about food that we just read and say, well, it says it's all created by God, and if I give thanks for it, it's okay. That's the Greek way of unpacking this. And don't get me wrong, Greeks are smart people. I'm not knocking I'm just saying, as you read Paul, there's all sorts of stuff like that in here, and this one persists in this by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So if I were not a Calvinist, which I'm not, I would go to the Calvinists and say, well, it says here that by doing what he's supposed to do and persisting, he will save himself. Does that mean Timothy wasn't saved before he started? You understand the argument? And those are the kinds of arguments that we get into. I'm not making that argument, by the way. I'm, I'm simply pointing out that that's the kind of stuff that we get ourselves wrapped around the axle about. And that's the kind of thing that fractures the church into 10,000 different denominations. I don't know that he's talking about that when he's saying don't get involved in endless genealogies or reverent myths or any of that kind of stuff. But that's what people do. It's what I call going through the Bible looking for loopholes. And so if I'm up for shrimp cocktail this weekend, boy, I can go right here to 1 Timothy 4 and as long as I give thanks for it, we're okay. In my personal economy, I wouldn't do that. But I've done that in other places and I suspect most of you have, have as well. And what I'm suggesting to you is you can really get wound around the axle on something like this if you're not careful. The way I take it, not being a Calvinist, is you have a choice whether you come into the kingdom. You also have a choice whether you leave. That's me. Calvinist would say, no, absolutely not. God makes you an offer you can't refuse, and you're either in or you're out, and that's up to him, not you. That's oversimplified. They're smarter than that. I don't happen to be of that persuasion. I believe that you can choose whether or not to say yes. And at some point, if you want to, you can turn around and say no. Now, the other part of that is it's, it appears to be God's policy that once you say yes, he tries very hard to arrange things so you don't have an opportunity to say no. So I'm not suggesting that you can pop in and out of the kingdom of God every two weeks just depending on your mood. I'm, I'm not suggesting that. So that's... Three and four. God willing, we should finish up First Timothy next week, which will take us, of course, right on to Second Timothy.